Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today's show has a new sponsor that I'm really excited about, Shuffle, which is a way for podcast fans to share and discuss the best clips from your favorite podcasts. They have a vibrant community of NBA fans, so you can check them out today and support the show at getshuffle.app slash thinkingbasketball. That's getshuffle.app, S-H-U-F-F-L-E, slash thinkingbasketball. I'll tell you more about it later in the show. First, let's roll the intro. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the show. Today we are going to be talking about LeBron, not the player, uh, but the uh-oh, statistical uh-oh. science. My, my thing. wife has uh, gotten into the podcast. She's taking over the show. T- today we are going to talk about LeBron from B Ball Index, their new stat, Christian Arsu, and Tim, Tim, what do we call you? Do we do we call you Cranjus McBasketball? We'll just call you Tim for the podcast, but you may know him better uh, as Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter. Uh, guys, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having us. Happy to happy to chat some LeBron. And uh, yeah, you can you guys can just call me Tim for this. You don't have to call me Cranjus. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I mean, how do you guys feel about you? You like this naming convention of naming metrics after players but i realized the immediate confusion when i went to look at lebron like lebron is first in lebron Mm, that's a weird thing it yeah so (laughs) we thought it would be better to have a name or naming convention rather than just a bunch of random letters and this time it actually works out pretty well that so lebron stands for luck adjusted player estimate using a box prior regularized on off which if that's all I told somebody about the metric, if they have a little bit of a data background and they're familiar with like regularization and, and that stuff, luck adjustments, they'd have a good sense for what the metric is itself. Now, <laughs> it ended up working out really well because LeBron has the highest career data. Um, if we look at just some career averages, and then he's also been first or second or third in a lot of seasons so far. So it worked out well. What we don't want people thinking is we designed something specifically to prop LeBron up. And the fact that I'm a Lakers fan and analyst uh, conflates the, the the public sentiment a little bit. But I can promise you that uh, it is as objective as we could make it. And it just worked out really well. And uh, yeah, all capital letters LeBron is the metric or me being excited about something on Twitter in a game. Only a couple capital letters is, is the player. <laughs> we we know what you've and done. I'm just going to mention that the name came after the metric. Like we spent probably way too long coming up with the name to like, you know, <laughs> but it, it did end up working out. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious. What what was the other finalist? I'm not sure we had one. It, we were struggling. <laughs> it was it was tough. And it, I, I mean, I think this fit is amazing because for every one of the phrases or words that we use, we're using like the first letter. We're not picking like the sixth letter in the middle of the of a word to be the one that goes into the acronym. Um, so it, it worked out pretty well. Krishna, do you remember any of the other finalists? 
I I don't. I I think what we were trying to do is like we were trying to come up with like names that would like we wanted to have like an L in there, right? So we had to think mm-hmm. of player names with L. Yeah. And, so and then you need was, like a player estimate with the E or rating with an R or impact yeah. with an I. So we had some options and it was just about figuring the best way to fit all of those pieces together. But like Krishna said, it was we came up with it after the metric was done. And I think that was that's been the hardest thing we've had to do so far is figure out what the hell the name was. was. Did you did you build a model to help you uh, come up with a name for the model? No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, let's let's get into it a little bit. What? was kind of your goal at a high level for creating LeBron? So I, I could take this one. So as you mentioned, PIPM, which was a very good stat and, and something that we used to have up at B-Ball Index, disappeared along with Jacob Goldstein when when he was hired uh, and is now doing great work with the Wizards and the Go-Go and the Mystics. And one thing that both of us enjoyed about PIPM was just the the way that you can use it in so many different ways and visualizing the data. And we had a bunch of cool tools that were available to the public where it was a more interactive uh, metric than some of the other ones like uh, RPM on ESPN. You can go see it, but they don't let you really play around with it as much. So we wanted to try to fill that void, take some of those concepts. And as we dig into what goes into LeBron, you'll see that there are some, you know, we're paying homage to Jacob and PIPM in a couple different ways and we wanted to build off of that work and see if we could just really review what went into it, how we could enhance it given the new data available, and just try to add something that was both really good from a descriptive standpoint and matched the eye test for people. And so far, the feedback has been positive, but also had a good bit of predictive value. And that's something that uh, Costa Medvedovsky uh, recently tested out a bunch of metrics and LeBron performed pretty well at uh, taking like last year's data, plugging it in for next year's players, trying to model out individual games. So thankfully it so far has performed well in both of those different areas. And we still have a couple planned enhancements on the way, such as devaluing garbage time, stabilizing small samples and leveraging offensive roles. Um, but right now we feel pretty good about LeBron trying to fill that void, being something accessible to the people. It's free. It's out there. There are a bunch of cool tools you can use to look at forecasted player values in the future or look at what their previous values look like or filter around and say, okay, what do the what are the top 25 shooting guards from the past five years who've played at least 500 minutes from the Eastern Conference look like? And you can get really specific with searching for specific guys. And that way we can better contextualize and say, hey, you know what? THT, he's he's very good for his age. And if you just look at his LeBron value overall, it may not fully uh, give him the credit that he's due given what he's doing for his young age. So there are a lot of different ways you can use it. And I think that's really what we were trying to accomplish with with this new iteration of an impact metric. Tim, immediately going back to the Lakers there, I like it. Um, <laughs> we, we noticed, we're taking notes here. I, you mentioned RPM, we've talked about PIPM. Uh, is this closer to one of those than the other? I kind of have my impression at a high level, but just to orient people out there, I've had a lot of people ask me, hey, like with certain mar- uh, metrics coming and going off the market, what is a replacement? What's similar to this? Where would you say that LeBron falls? Um, it, it might not be PI, PIPM or RPM, but just similar to something else that's been in the public domain or been a, a known metric for a while. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this uh, one, uh, Krishna's got a good answer for it. Okay. Um, yeah, so actually, I <laughs> I like to say this is like kind of like the child of RPM and PIPM because essentially what we're doing is we're using um, box PIPM as the prior RAPM in the RAPM calculation. So it's the RPM um, kind of method, but using box PIPM as a prior. So it's kind of a combination. And uh, and I think that's what I really like about it is that, you know, we're kind of getting the best of both worlds. So let's just and I just want to really quickly unpack those for anyone who's not familiar with them. RAPM is taking plus minus and adjusting it for your teammates and your opponents. And the R comes from a lot, I've seen a lot of people think now the R comes from real. The R comes from uh, regularization, which is just a, a method to essentially try to make that more accurate, to try to control for some of the noise uh, that naturally occurs in this kind of data. And so that's your like plus minus family side. And then um, I guess to complete your lineage, Krishna, the box score side, which is all the stats, of course, we're familiar with points, rebounds, assists, yada, 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 that gets um, the same kind of treatment that essentially that um, PIPM was giving it, right? Yes, that that's right. And when Krishna mentions that we're using it as a prior, he what that means is instead of having a box and the on-off component and just kind of like throwing them together, what we do is we run those RAPM calculations using what we call a prior. So if we're running those RAPM calculations and we're uh, regressing players towards, I don't know, there, there's some blank space we need to fill in. Instead of pushing everybody towards average, we can push them towards this informed prior uh knowing that okay steph curry's a i don't know a plus three and lebron is a plus four whatever it happens to be so it, it's able to be a more estimate or a more advised educated um pushing players in specific directions when there's a little bit more gray area in those rapm calculations right there's there's a natural amount of kind of noise or uncertainty that you can have using plus minus data so this is anchoring it or moving it in a direction that has other, you know, informed information behind it. You guys know, I, I ask this about every metric that's on the market or whenever I talk about this stuff, where does this fall on the sort of value versus goodness scale? Are you trying to capture how well players are performing uh, in a vacuum independent of what's going on? Or are you trying to measure how valuable they are in their context? This is trying to evaluate the impact a player has given what they're asked to do in all of their circumstance. So I, I think the way we like to phrase it at B-Ball Index is impact, whether it's BPM or, or RPM or LeBron or PIPM or whatever it happens to be, that is a factor of a player's talent along with the roles that they're asked to perform on offense and defense. And we've taken a, a, a jab at quantifying those as well as team scheme and, and just kind of the fit within lineups. So we can look at players year after year, and if you change their offensive role in a way that better fits their skill set or moves them away from a skill set match and optimizes them worse, we can see that impact, the, their, their impact, their LeBron. Um, and this is kind of the baseline for how we end up doing our coaching optimization ratings where we look at 
player impact through through LeBron, and then we compare that with the talent grades that we've also worked on developing that try to really look at how good somebody is in key specific skills like perimeter shooting or getting to and finishing at the rim or playmaking and looking at the gap between those things at the team level and trying to evaluate how much how much value is the coaching staff adding to this team by optimizing players well, running a good scheme. And you see guys like, I don't know, Quinn Snyder and Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich and Frank Vogel at the top for defense. And offensively, you see guys like Mike D'Antoni, um, Ty Lue's up there. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but the looking at it as an impact equals talent plus context uh, perspective allows us to do a lot of different fun things with the data. The coaching one's kind of fascinating. One of my recent podcasts was looking at defensively successful teams that didn't have players we think of as defensive superstars and trying to kind of like see what a ceiling might be there. What kind of, um, I guess, numerical results are you seeing when you say, okay, this set of coaches is at the top of the league. Let's stick with the defensive ones you you pointed out. How much impact are you actually estimating based on the kind of inference you're making there? So that's something that we analyzed um, back when Jacob Goldstein was part of B-Ball Index. We looked at modeling out uh, basically P- how can we uh, estimate PIPM given a player's talent grades and role and coaching opt- career optimization data um, and then like height and weight. And what we found was that the importance of that optimization differs based on what you're asked to do. For example, on offense, players like LeBron or James Harden, players who are really creating their own offense, they kind of are the offense. They are much more translatable no matter which scheme you put them in, whereas a guy like a J.J. Redick or a Duncan Robinson, a Davis Bertans, players who are more off-screen shooters, uh, the scheme that you put them in can very much more so impact the impact that they have offensively. And we see the same sorts of things on defense. So by looking and saying, okay, well, Steve Kerr and Nick Nurse, Greg Popovich, uh, Ty Lue, D'Antoni, those are some of the higher level offensive optimization coaches were able to say that they're they're making more out of the talent than uh, we would expect the average coach coach to get out of them given whatever those skill sets are. But on a player-by-player level, we expect it to have more or less of an impact based on the job that they're asked to do. So my immediate thought there, it's really interesting. And and I go to, well, if you think about the sort of topic du jour lately, heliocentrism, if I'm LeBron, James Harden, guys like that, how much diversity can you actually have in a role like that versus if I'm an off ball shooter or a finisher of plays or things like that, um, not only would I imagine there's going to be dependencies on guys setting me up, but to your point, uh, there's a lot of different ways coaches might implement a player like that. We've, of course, seen something like this with Duncan Robinson and going from, you know, like, is he a G leaguer or is he a star on a finals team? Um, thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is something that Todd Whitehead, who writes for Nylon Calculus, does some great data visualization stuff on Twitter. You might know him as Crumple, at Crumple Jumper. He uh, put together a couple analyses looking at player skill sets and player roles, comparing and then comparing that to lineup performance. And what we were able to find is there are certain types of players that when you group them together, either in groups of two, three, four, or five, we can get more out of those lineups than you would generally expect given the talent levels 
within the lineup. Um, so to a certain degree, if you have too many heliocentric guys altogether, maybe you're not making the most out of the talent that's out there. Uh, whereas on the other end of things, if you have a bunch of players that aren't really able to drive that offense, create for others, you can also underperform. But then if you pair together like a really strong passing point guard with a big man, that's a, like a roll and cut big, who's like a roller, a dump off finisher, lob threat, there can be more synergy there than with that roll and cut big with like a, I don't know, uh, a shot creator who's more inclined to taking his own shots rather than looking to create for others. So we, we have some of those analyses and actually we have some interactive free tools on bballindex.com that folks can go to and see, all right, if I put these types of skill sets around LeBron, how have, how have uh, lineups with that makeup performed over the past decade? Um, and, and we link over to Todd's analyses and he looks at like, all right, how much is a three and D player worth on the market? And when you put him in specific lineups, does that value go up or down? So there's a lot you can do with it. And I think evaluating impact well and evaluating talent well are the basis for opening all of these different doors and evaluating coaches and the synergies and all of that different stuff. Hmm. Let's um, let's go back to LeBron, Le- the, the metric, not the player. I'm going to confuse myself before we're done with this. Um, we keep talking about role, right? And sort of the insight of having not not looking at players as all homogenous, you know, the same kind of thing, or even just, hey, you play point guard, you play center, uh, sort of understanding role in a functional perspective in a way that makes sense to us when we talk about basketball and also can be more informative when we look at metrics like this. Talk a little bit more about role. I know it's a big thing. Um, both in LeBron and a lot of the stuff that you do at B-Ball Index that you just mentioned. I, I Part of me kind of feels like there's some secret sauce in this metric based on role. Is that is that fair? Talk more about role. Yeah, sure. So uh, we look at offensive archetypes and defensive roles at B-Ball Index. And so offensively, there are four on-ball, either guard or wing-type roles. We have primary ball handlers, secondary ball handlers, and then shot creators and slashers. And then uh, for off ball guards and wings, we have off screen shooters, which are the evolution of movement shooters, which are the evolution of stationary shooters. And then we have athletic finishers who are more your off ball guard or wing who isn't a shooter, um, maybe like a David Nwaba from a couple of years ago. And then for big men, we have post scores, we have stretch bigs, we have roll and cut bigs, and then we have versatile bigs who are kind of the do it all guys. And hopefully through those naming conventions, the general idea of what those different players do is easily conveyed. We try to make it as easily understandable as possible just to the average person having a conversation at work or at a bar with their teammates or whatever it happens to be. All of those roles look at what you're asked to do, not quite what you are most suited for from a talent standpoint. And and actually, we look at the difference between those and we say, oh, man, this guy is being used as a post score, but really he should be a stretch big. And we can evaluate the degree of fit from role to their skill set and then look at the opportunity cost team by team and coach by coach as well. But that's a separate thing. Um, But these roles look at the deployment of players from a like a synergy play type standpoint. So like pick and roll ball handler possessions versus spotting up versus running off of off ball screens versus cutting all of those. We look at three point attempt rates um, and, and also driving rates to help identify which players are asked to do specific things. And then uh, I can let Krishna chime in because uh, we've been going back and forth a little bit about how we utilize those archetypes 
to uh, help with the stabilization for LeBron? Yeah, so essentially what the stabilization does is, I think Tim mentioned Kasia earlier, so it uses a padding method, and like at what point does the stat stabilize, kind of. So the best way to explain this is probably to give an example. So for like three-point percentage, um, the stabilization rate he found was around 240 attempts or something. So what you do is you essentially pad um, the player's three-point percentage with, uh, in this case, we use like the the average for the offensive um, role, and you basically pad the player's percentage with the average for the offensive role, and then that's how you get like their stabilized role adjusted um, three point percentage. So we do that for each one of the stats. Um, so uh, Box PIPM uses it's it's up on the uh, B ball index site. You can it uses like mostly it just uses box score stats. So it's got points, rebounds, assists. So we stabilize uh, all of these stats with the offensive role um, league averages. I should yeah, mention and- that. It's not yet included in the version we have up on the site, but that's something that uh, is going to be an enhancement. Right. It's in it's and in the works. It's yeah. it's in the works. Okay. It'll be coming out at some point soon. And, and really why we chose to do it by the offensive roles and archetypes instead of just position or pushing everybody towards the same values is we're kind of trusting that teams are using players in ways fitted towards their skill set. So if we have two big men that are both – They've shot 0 for 10 on three-pointers, but one of them is being used as a roll-and-cut big who is not a three-point shooter, and the other one is is being used as a stretch big. We wouldn't fill in the blank for what we expect them to do moving forward the same for like a JaVale McGee versus a Carl Anthony Towns. So on smaller samples, this padding approach helps us fill in some of the ambiguity, and by incorporating archetypes, we're able to better push that ambiguity in the right direction um, because we shouldn't expect JaVale McGee and Steph Curry to shoot the same three-point percentage moving forward, which is what it would look like if we just had everybody with the same padding, nor should we expect, you know, a, a big man that doesn't shoot and a big man that shoots all the time to shoot the same percentage moving forward. So this is just a more granular way of incorporating that padding approach that uh, has been used in the past. And we're just trying to find a way to use those roles that we already have calculated to enhance the padding just a little bit to make it more accurate, especially for small sample players. Okay. So let me, let me back up for a second. Uh, Is it fair then to say that each player's classification of his role, and it seems pretty clear that role plays a um, nice contextual, you know, uh, differentiator for different players here as we as as LeBron applies to them is it fair to say role is emerging entirely from data and that's how the players are being categorized and then it's is that data I guess independent of LeBron is there a separate thing going on under the hood that puts all these players in their role category before they're fed into LeBron yes that's something we we do separately and then when LeBron is being calculated, it looks at the, that box score data. It's we, we feed in what those archetypes have already been calculated as, and it's not really using any box score data for that specifically. And then it goes on to complete the next couple steps. 
Okay, and that and Roll is using stuff that's a little more granular, if I'm understanding right. Like there might be some uh, player tracking data or things like that. Other other stuff that's actually helping you categorize, and I assume maybe even past seasons, right? Like just trying to give you an understanding of two players that are both six ten started the season zero for ten from three, and they're listed on Basketball Reference as power forwards, but One's a stretch big and runs. One's a a rim runner. Sorry, that's not your verbiage. I can't remember it off the top of my head. R- rolling cut big. Rolling rolling cut big, right? And so, therefore, we wouldn't intuitively expect them to shoot uh, or or kind of stabilize to a certain three point percentage because one guy, you know, in the long run is going to be like two for thirty over a year or two of shooting and the other guy may have just played two games and had two bad shooting games and in a month he's going to be 70 71 of 185 or something like that exactly yeah so and and to dig into that a little bit further so for player a for let's say for javel mcgee he has the, the data that we're feeding in to calculate the archetype will say all right he has finished 30 dump offs he has been the role man 25 times and he has 15 putbacks Oh, and he's taken a couple threes. And from all of that data, we can say, all right, his style offensively is as a rolling cut. Whereas the other player, he might have the same number of three-point attempts, but those might be the, like a really high proportion of his shots. He's always a spot up. He, he may be the same height, same weight, but he is a spot up or pick and pop uh, player. And therefore, we categorize him as a stretch big. Makes sense. Okay. So then... It sounds like my, my next question is going back to our luck adjustment concept. It sounds like it's fair to say those are different at the player level, right? Like one player is essentially going to be treated differently with luck adjustments as well. Am I reading too much into that? Or is that is the luck adjustment the same from player to player and team to team? Uh, okay, I can take this one. Um, so essentially what the luck adjustment is, is... Um, we actually use so it's it's a similar process as to what Ryan um, Ryan Davis uses on uh, NBAShotCharts.com. Actually, we use the exact same you know luck adjusted points. Uh, and what he does there is he uses career percentages at each of his shot zones, um, and then uh, he pads it, uh, he stabilizes it with for, for the know, player career career for the player is that right for each player yes career for the player okay yeah keep, keep in, in each specific shot zone and and then he also uses career uh free throw percentage and so that's the luck kind of portion of it luck adjusted portion of it um and oh i should also mention the the box pipm it does uh sum up to a to luck adjusted team ratings which um, Nathan came up with, uh, Nathan Walker came up with. So um, there's a small kind of luck adjusted portion in the box PI PM part, but that's kind of more related to just adjusting to sum up to the team. Um, so instead of summing up to the average net rating um, on the season, it sums up to the luck average adjusted net rating. Got it. Got it. Um have you actually this this is kind of a a point of debate I've seen in the community in the last few years. 
have you seen improvements when you try to test whatever whatever kind of stress test you can give metrics and compare them have you seen improvements with luck adjustments my assumption is that it's going to help to a certain degree but i do think there are specific situations where um it actually gets a little sticky i think it helps a lot with one year uh you know metrics because essentially within one year like you know three point percentage for example is like pretty variable right um but i think you know probably over like three or four years and stuff like that you know it might not help as much but it really helps i think for these one-year metrics Yep. And we see that illustrated when you look at the comparison between RAPM and luck adjusted RAPM, both calculated by Ryan Davis. And those were part of the testing that that Kostya did as well. And we saw that the luck adjusted version of the same metric and is using the same luck adjustments that we are uh, performs better than the unluck adjusted version of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so just to clarify, the the big thing here is just basically any scoreboard stat is going to have extra noise because you know if if your opponents shoot i don't know a couple percentage points above their expected or average shooting against you over the course of the year from three point range um that adds up to a lot of points right and so if you happen to be on the court during those moments then all of a sudden stats like this are thinking hmm you you keep correlating with the with the defense getting worse, but it's just luck-based. So that that's the idea behind um, these kinds of luck adjustments with three-point shooting. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's three-point shooting and free throws. Is that um, essentially the two categories that are involved in that? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say the free throw uh, aspect is big for like opponent because, you know, opponent free throw per- percentage for the season is, is going to be basically all luck, right? Like... <laughs> It's it's mostly luck. Um, I used to actually think it was all luck. I now have decided it's mostly luck, and I think it depends on the player as well. And so, do I, I noticed this doing the greatest peak series where I'm focusing on superstars with heavy offensive loads, right? And it actually turns out that basically across the board, all of them shoot worse against better defenses and better teams, which is a really interesting thing to like originally see. When you're going, hmm, is that like an is that an error? Why is this player's free throw percentage that I want to luck? I want to luck adjust that right. His free throw percentage being worse against these defenses shouldn't hurt him or count against him when we're trying to actually figure out how he performs. If he's getting to the line a lot, we should credit him with that. And then I encountered it with the next player and the next player and the next player, and for the most part, I think. I've seen that exact same trend with superstars. So I'm now starting to think that like when we see certain changes in free throw percentage, sometimes it's actually a defense being really physical or maybe in the case of the Warriors, an offense running you around so your legs get really dead. Oh, and, and so that's affecting them on the on the free throws. Exactly. Is yeah. that Okay, that that's a good theory because like yeah, to me, it just kind of it's like, why would you shoot worse from the free throw line given the conditions like against one team versus another? But yeah, that's that's an interesting thought, Ben. That I had not heard that before. That's, I mean, that, that seems like a neat breakthrough. I want for the purposes of LeBron or other stats that are trying to measure impact. If 
we are, I mean, if, if I, we're in a game and my teammates are shooting worse than they normally would because the opponent's defense is better and they're making us run around or whatever it happens to be, should that impact, like, is that something we should still luck adjust versus should we be giving that defense more credit? I, I, I think there's true value in what you shared. I wonder about the application uh, of it being appropriate um, or I, I don't know, I just have to think through it. It's a new concept, but uh, I would wonder if that is something that we should take a look at or not. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where I think the aggregate or the average is probably going to apply largely across the board, but then we just have to think about or maybe be careful. I don't know how much it affects these individual players, but it's the kind of thing that when you get granular and you're comparing, I mean, you're you guys are so sensitive to role, when you're comp- comparing players in certain roles, Maybe there is something going on. And if I'm a guy who moves a lot, you know, on offense, maybe that has some carryover on um, my the guy who's chasing me on his three point shooting or his free throw shooting or things like that. This is this is actually Mm -hmm. an interesting kind of point to segue to the um, latest hot topic on NBA Twitter, which do you guys have thoughts on the three opponent three point shooting thing and the Celtics? Um yeah, I, I, I have a lot of potential thoughts, but I want to know where you guys kind of stand on that. So it, it's spanning across multiple rosters, coaches, like qu- quite a bit of time the Celtics have uh, had opponents shoot really poorly um, playing them. I mean, is it a I, I truly don't know the answer. I my, Some of my guesses would be like, is it a cameras or tracking thing at TD Garden or is there something about the arena or the fans where they're located or something that is impacting sh- shots going in or not? But it at a high level, uh, I know Todd Whitehead head has analyzed a couple possible suggestions about like, oh, they're leaving the right people open or they're giving up fewer corner threes as opposed to above the break threes. And he was able to debunk a good bit of the more common ones I've heard. Uh, I'm not sure if there has been a conclusion yet. But yeah, this is a true mystery, I think. It's it's quite an interesting topic. Krishna, do you have a take on this? <laughs> I'm really not sure either. I mean, I think the the thing that that's surprising to me is like the the wide open three point percentage. And and I know like so the NBA uh, site defines wide open as uh, closest defenders like six plus feet away. Um, and actually, it should probably be categorized as open, and and anything less than that should probably be contested. But that's uh, another topic for a different day but (laughs) i i guess the thing that's like surprising to me is like how do you like they're consistently low in the in the wide open three-point percentage and i think part of that could be um like maybe they have generally had good defenses so it could be and and maybe like more longer athletic players where where you get um so players contesting with a bigger wingspan possibly you know is like in general they probably had players maybe who have um, been better at contesting shots or something but although uh, yeah this the six feet away thing that yeah i'm i'm just <laughs> you're stuck I, 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 <laughs> you're stumped yeah. it's tough I, it goes yeah. so many years that it's, it's difficult it, yeah. to try to nail down to one of those things because i do think if it were just a couple years in the same sort of roster or defensive scheme you could say oh well because the NBA is categorizing all these uncontested threes, the same whether it's somebody six feet from you or 
30 feet from you, there's there's some difference there. There's uh, That's a bucket that's not a gradient, and you lose some value by grouping stuff together in that way. So in theory, maybe the Celtics are leaving guys open only uh, six feet versus other teams. It's more 10 feet or 15 feet, and that, right, has right. a, a, makes, that makes right. a difference. Right, yeah. I but think that's fact, one thing. Like, rosters and teams, that, that's what n- knocks that one out in contention for me. That's the one I'm really curious about is, like, the 10-plus feet. Is that, like, if they're good on at like contesting on 10 plus feet that seems like really like i i think like tim's saying like six to ten feet there could be some like you know gray area there where it's like not yeah and and we should clarify the way the cameras do this that six feet is not necessarily where your hand is as a contesting defender so uh, this is why Tim was saying could be something with the angle of the cameras or something like that. The idea that you shoot it, I guess it's off the top of my head. I can't remember. It's like the center of their torso or something that that actually uses their location for a defender. Do you guys remember? I mean, that's what it is in like track and field. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. Right. So it it's more something like that versus where you're, where your hand actually is. And so I don't know the data off the top of my head in terms of um, their their difference with wide open three defense. But if wide open threes are classified as six feet and one team is or one defense is allowing wide open threes where no one's within eight or 10 or 12 feet and there's barely a closeout or a contest nearby and it was a possession that was pretty smooth and as a shooter you're getting uh, a shot in rhythm and all that stuff. Uh, you didn't have to run around a lot on the possession and work hard for it. That's going to be a different shot to me than if you had to work really hard and it's the end of a possession and there's like, I, I don't know if shot clock data is filtered into this, but just run with me on this example. There's two or three seconds left on the shot clock. You catch and there's a guy closing out to you and he's closing out hard and he may be big and athletic because they like to play those guys. And that registers as the defender being seven feet away when you shoot, um, but he's long and he's running really hard. That's going to be a different shot than, you know, I have enough time to take a cup of coffee out there and comfortably release this thing. So that's kind of where my mind goes, but I I don't, I haven't seen an answer either. Yeah. So related to that, actually, I published an article at Nylon Calculus uh, a few years back where, um, so I had a, a shot quality model called Kobe. Um, and I, uh, as one of the variables, I just wanted to test it out, um, on whether it was significant or not. I put in wingspan and I found that there was a slight, um, so wingspan was significant and there was a, a slight like difference in like in three point percentage defense or essentially in shot quality when you include wingspan. So, I mean, makes sense right like you know you get somebody longer contesting they're more likely to affect a shot than you know somebody small okay so let's let's make our way back to lebron um what kind of players would you say lebron likes does it does it have biases or do you see patterns where if you are one of these archetypes or roles uh maybe the metric likes you a little bit more for instance i feel like a lot of the stuff that's come into the public sphere lately 
both the new version of um, Box Plus Minus on Basketball Reference and even something like 538's Raptor, which we dissected last year when it came out with Nate Silver. Like, those stats seem to really like the new um, do-everything, heliocentric, on-ball guard lead initiator types. Uh, do, you, do you guys feel that LeBron has any kind of biases in that direction? What are your What are your thoughts on seeing patterns about what players LeBron really digs? So I, I think the fact that we've calculated it so recently <laughs> makes it harder to, I, I'm not sure I fully digested looking through all the years of data, but one thing I have noticed is at least looking at the archetypes, they seem to make sense. Like I, I, I can't speak to, and Krishna might have some more input on if the the metric has I don't know a, a specific a specific weakness in, in terms of a blind spot to a certain skill set or talent or is more favorable to certain things more than they should be but looking at just like the 10th 25th 50th 75th 90th percentiles and weighted average by archetype we see that players like you're describing Ben those those shot creators those on ball I'm going to be making things happen uh, they and primary ball handlers are some of the top two uh, archetypes. Um, I think the the natural progression we see with some of them in that like primary ball handlers are ahead of secondary ball handlers or off-screen shooters are ahead of movement shooters who are ahead of stationary shooters. And then combining that with the fact that looking at player movement year after year, role by role, we see a natural pipeline kind of up, we, we call it a, a role ladder almost. Like you come into the league, you have some skill sets, you're going to be more of a secondary ball handler. As you develop over time, you're able to be that primary ball handler. You're a better player at that point in time. You're able to handle more responsibility in a role that is more impactful on average. And that's what we see with this. Um, we see some of those more replaceable skill sets like roll and cut bigs, stationary shooters, and athletic finishers be the lowest three uh, average weighted average offensive LeBron uh, impact role. So I don't, I'm not sure that it likes or dislikes certain types of guys more than others. I think there's a pretty logical um, uh, progression of players to specific roles as they get better as players. And then based on the workload and impact of those roles in general, we tend to see certain types of players shine more than others in the metrics. So like you're going to see a lot of really good shot creators. If you're not impactful as a shot creator, if you're like a negative guy as a shot creator, that's unusual. And probably because the coaching staffs for these teams aren't going to deploy you in a way where you're in over your head. So like Rudy Gay, for example, he was a shot creator past year or two. He has moved into a much smaller role this year. Harrison Barnes, Similar. Th those are guys who that role wasn't a fit for them. So we saw them not be used in that role for too long based on them aging uh, and, and their skill sets declining or just them finding a new role or new team and, and that team realizing they're not a good fit for what they were previously being asked to do. So I think the, the coaching aspect of this helps naturally sort players into jobs that they're capable of. Um, and because of that, we, we end up seeing a pretty natural progression um, looking at the list. So we've talked a lot about offensive roles and kind of um, even offensive archetypes that I just mentioned. How do you feel about the defensive component of the stat? I feel like that's always kind of the, the frontier or the holy grail with so many overall metrics. Um, thoughts on that? Have you 
tested anything defensive specific. Um, like I'll, I'll give you one example that just jumped out to me that, as you said, you, you guys might not even have combed through and noticed this. Chris Paul in 2011 is one of the better seasons with LeBron. Remember, that's not 2008 where I almost won MVP. It's not 2009. That's 2011 where he had the big playoff push uh, against the Lakers with a kind of surprisingly competitive series. And the thing I noticed there is it actually loves his defense. It's like, oh, Chris Paul that year was a monster, one of the best non-big defenders in your database. As an aside, most of the top LeBron seasons, uh, at least on like the first page or two of scrolling, um, those are mostly big men. Your first non-big men seasons you'll see are like Kawhi Leonard 2015, I want to say. I think Tony Allen has a couple seasons up there. So the the usual group we see from plus minus guys. Um, but just talk a little bit. We've been on offense. Talk a little bit about that defensive component, how you guys feel about it, and so on and so forth. I think we, I, I, maybe I'm misremembering. I, I believe recently we took a look at which role. So we looked at guard, forward, center. And yeah, yeah. if you remove the player names and look at their, their average impact of those just positions in general, how it compares guards versus forwards versus centers. I think that might add some value from a, from a defensive standpoint, a defensive lens in terms of why we might see certain types of players higher or lower. Oh yeah. Yeah. So normally, I mean, with uh, just running RAPM with just the positions, you find that, you know, centers have the highest defensive impact, not surprisingly, and, and guards um, have the lowest. So I think obviously that's why you tend to see a lot of the bigs, uh, have to ha- uh, have the highest uh, defensive LeBron, and you know you'll see. So, I mean, uh, th- yeah, that seems pretty intuitive to me. I think, right? And, and also, so we we look at defensive roles as well, and this is something that that we were the two of us worked with Jeff Siegel, who's now uh, working with Clutch Sports um, on developing, and the the roles that he came up with were anchor big, mobile big, perimeter big. Wing stopper, chaser, point of attack, and helper is the the what seven different roles. And those anchor bigs, these are your I don't know your Rudy Gobert's, your uh, Sabonis, Javale McGee, Dwight Howard. I don't know your Bobons, your Whitesides, your Drummonds. Those are guys in that role. We tend to see on average be the most valuable defensive role overall. Now, when we look at the playoffs specifically, we actually tend to see certain types of defenders and certain types of offensive players. Uh, see their impact go up or down like holistically as a type of position. And in general, with big men on defense, almost every anchor big going from their regular season multi-year LeBron to their their playoff multi-year LeBron looking at the seasons for guys who were the same role every season, we see those anchor bigs take a hit in their defensive impact. And Hmm. I think this makes sense once we get to the playoffs Instead of playing a bunch of drop coverage, you're not able to do that as much when you're playing the higher caliber teams that have more dynamic scoring guards that you want to be more soft or catch hedging against or trapping or or blitzing or um, switching against. So the less mobile, better rim protecting bigs, they're still valuable. But once we get to the playoffs, they generally take a hit. And the guys that we say see take the biggest jump are those perimeter perimeter bigs who are your more your off ball help big men a lot of like so for example anthony davis 
Giannis, Draymond Green, Thaddeus Young. These are mobile bigs. Um, they're, they're, they're mobile players as bigs that are often more your your help side um, player running in to block a shot or take a charge or whatever it happens to be. But once we get to the playoffs, those are the types of guys that end up playing those small ball five roles and are more switchy and thus see a higher impact. And it's a more translatable skill set once you get to the playoffs. So that's just an example of um, the trends that we tend to see in the data. Big men in general, more valuable. Certain types of big men, more valuable than others. Once we get to the playoffs, the, the, the type of play, the style of play, and the types of opponents you're playing allow for certain types of defenders to be more impactful than others. And that I, I guess those are just some of the high-level takeaways I've noticed so far. Maybe over time we uh, are able to derive some more insights. But that's that's just something that stuck out to me looking at the data the past couple of days. Actually, also, I'll just respond. You mentioned Chris Paul had uh, one of the highest uh, defensive LeBrons in 2011. And I think, I mean, one thing, so CP3 always has pretty good defensive metrics, um, certainly for like a guard, right? And uh, I've always thought that's primarily due to like his communication, right? Like he communicates a lot, probably more than, you know, so just like getting everyone in the right place. And at least that's always been my intuition as to why he's always consistently had a high defensive impact for uh, a guard. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, And based on that communication, we, much to the chagrin of our friend Seth Partnow at The Athletic, we still do not have communication data that I know of as inputs for these things. So with that, something like that would be picked up in plus minus data. With that said, Krishna, is is a majority of the... I guess what caught my eye about the Chris Paul example is you can compare it to box score stats and you can compare it to pure RAPM and you can c- compare it to other hybrids. And it's still, I think off the top of my head, kind of is the best of all of those that I've seen. And so my question is, would you guys say that the majority of the defensive impact is still coming from plus minus that RAPM input? Or is it more of a mix? Do you have other pieces of information in there, maybe tracking data or whatever, using the roles that you guys have talked about that is driving someone's defensive LeBron um, more than just plus minus well so it's going to be a mix of essentially the uh box score and the plus minus and and, you know as you get a bigger sample it's going to be like so for our three-year lebron that we have uh the plus minus data is going to have like you know more weight because it's a bigger sample um and you don't need to you know it's, it's not going to get progressed to the prior as much as um it would for one year. And then obviously, so like now at this point in the season, like 20 games in, um, you're going to have more of a box score uh, impact. Um, And so uh, as of right now, we don't have any of the tracking data in, in LeBron, which, you know, we'd like to, we're going to, that's going to be one of our enhancements that we're going to add in, you know, the tracking data. But I would say, it, it, it like I can't really give like a weight like say it's like fifty percent box score fifty percent you know plus minus because that's like not really the way it works but I think for you know Chris Paul I think you you be able to kind of get a good ballpark from like if you look at like um, 
box PIPM and then the luck adjusted IPM that Ryan publishes, you can kind of look at all three of them together and you can, I think, maybe come up with like, oh, okay, so it's more this or it's more that. Yeah, yep. no, that makes that makes total sense. Uh, Tim, did I hear you right a second ago? Did you say you have a playoff LeBron? We do. Yes, playoff LeBron is available. Krishna just mentioned there's a multi-year uh, regular season LeBron as well. Um, but right now we just have what is what is it, Krishna? I think it's like 2017. It's I it's think it's a three-year three. version. Yeah, yeah. 2017, 18 to 2019, 20. For for playoff LeBron. For playoff LeBron. Yeah, I mean, playoff only LeBron. Yeah. So playoff um, LeBron is a real thing, which is not to be confused with LeBron James playoff LeBron. Which is also a real thing. Um, okay, that's cool. Is that is that also available on B-Ball? It's, for some reason, my research said the playoff LeBron was coming in the future, and it hasn't arrived. So I, I'm going to fire all of my interns, um, which in this case is really just me. So, so uh, it, Ben, that's probably us not updating the uh, LeBron write-up document. Okay, okay, it's cool. Uh, error occurred yes we we have put it out fairly recently i'll have to go through and update our methodology uh document and, and make sure the folks don't go there and uh not find it but yeah it's available on the site bball-index.com we among our free data and tools we have uh, an impact stat comparison page we have playoff lebron we have just lebron um and then a couple other interactive tools as well just free to the public you can go find on the site perfect and and yeah, I'd also say I, I think Playoff LeBron is meant to be a little more reflective in the sense that, like, I don't, given the sample sizes you get in the playoffs, um, I'm not sure how predictive it's going to be. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I, but I think it can for be example, used for, for the study Tim mentioned earlier, where we look at, like, the change in roles, right? Um, yeah. At an individual player basis, when you play, some of these guys are playing, like, one team or two teams each of those years. And so like Dame Lillard, for example, he doesn't show up all that positively. Um, he's, he's, I think, one of the lowest defense. Yeah, he's the third lowest player in defense of LeBron for, for the playoffs. And that could be because of the specific matchup he was playing in. Or like his offense isn't nearly as good as it normally is. And that's because the Lakers deployed a specific defensive scheme to take away his pick and roll ball handling ability. Um, to attack and just that whole offense fell apart as, as based on what the Lakers were doing defensively schematically in that series. So just little things like that, whether it's a good matchup or a bad matchup can really impact how you show up in this. And because of that, it's much less predictive, we'd say, than something like single year LeBron or even I think multi year LeBron would be what you'd want to use if trying to forecast moving forward. And that's what we use within our free uh, uh database um, with all the interactive tools if people want to say, all right, well, what are the odds that LeBron puts up a MVP caliber season two years from now versus an all-star season versus all NBA versus just a starter? Um, so we, we look at the multi-year LeBron to be as predictive as possible. And so right now, how far back does this stuff go? What's the, so you have regular season, the playoffs go back a few years. Um, how far back does the regular season go? And ultimately, how far back can you go with the the method that you're using? Right now, the regular season goes back to 2009 to 2010, that 2009-10 season. And I think we can go back further, but um, 
I believe some of the issues, like there's the play-by-play data gets a little more dicey uh, before 2010, I believe. It's it's pretty good from what I've seen back to 2001, but there may have been changes um, in 2010 for those unfamiliar play-by-play was officially recorded starting in the 96-97 season. So potentially with stats like this, we can reach back into the past. Um, I will leave you guys with my favorite question that I always ask myself after ending up with a new metric and playing with it for a while. What do you think the biggest weakness is in LeBron, the metric, not the player? So I think when we put this together and from a a conceptual standpoint, and and, and when we, when we design this, when it's being run, Krishna is the, the, the one coding all of this, running it, putting it together. I've been the, the guy with the, hey, can we do this? Hey, what about that? Hey, you know, here's my wish list or here are the concepts I want to make sure we're able to cover. Conceptually, I think we've covered as many bases as you can, at least given, you know, what what I'm aware of and what else is out there. We've we've tried to have this be a combination of best practice approaches when, you know, it, with regards to like dealing with small sample size players or incorporating role or trying to adjust for things that aren't controllable by individual players with a luck adjustment by trying to remove any, you know, this guy's in a bunch of good lineups, so he's going to look up better than he otherwise would by using RAPM rather than an estimated RAPM, which some impact metrics use. So there are a bunch of factors, a bunch of variables we've considered and tried to counter. I think given time, uh, especially since this is brand new, we'll, we'll identify more ways that it can be enhanced and improved. I think the fact that it doesn't capture tracking data right now is it, it leaves room for uh, it to not see guys who might be doing things that aren't just captured in the results themselves, which is really what you're working with with the on-off data and the box score data, which can still be pretty good, but it's not going to be perfect. So once we incorporate tracking data, I think that will enhance this. And then I think really where I anticipate the most issues with LeBron moving forward is just ensuring people apply it the right ways and understand what it can do, what it can't do, that it's not really a ranking system of talent. It's an estimate of impact, given your role, given your scheme, given all of those things. And one of the things that that we've been talking about is trying to uh, produce some outputs of guys by tiers rather than just ranking, you know, here's one through three, one, one through 500 or whatever, whatever it is. It might be tier one is these players, tier two is these players, just because it is an estimate. And if a dude's like 0.02 ahead of someone else, like you, you shouldn't be using that to go win arguments per se. So use it appropriately. We, we try to provide some of that context in our FAQ section on the write-up. But as far as the, the metrics weaknesses Overall, I think the tracking component of it and the fact that it's only looking at results is really where I would pinpoint the the greatest areas for opportunity. I was just going to add to that. Yeah, so I I guess, yeah, so the tracking would be the main thing. We can add tracking data. I think uh, some of the planned enhancements we're going to make are we are going to try to make, you know, filter out or de-weight garbage time. And, you know, we haven't totally figured out how to do that yet. I, I want to use something a little more, you know, something like wind probability data to come up with a, a better way to de-weight garbage time instead of like saying like, say, oh, okay, this is 
you know, the fourth quarter and a team's up by 20. So we're not or, you know, whenever a team takes the stars out or, or something. So something a little more empirical. Yeah, empirical. The other. Yeah. And so obviously I think tracking data would help a lot with defense, really, because, uh, you know, one of the like rim protection, for example. Right. Like uh, right now we have blocks as a component like that's one of the um, but obviously like if you can factor in field goal percentage at the rim that would be better than just using blocks right so so I, yeah I would say primarily you know finding a way to de-weight garbage time and incorporating the tracking data which is kind of like the next iteration of LeBron yep and, and that is something that we also address through our talent grades as well where like for interior defense, instead of just saying, you know, field goal percentage at the rim and blocks to to come up with a, a rating, we look at, are you able to deter shots from being taken at the rim when you're on the court? And when shots are taken at the rim, are you contesting them at a high rate? Are you de- And then for the ones you are contesting, are you disrupting the effectiveness of the players once they get there? So it's a, trying to be more holistic, and we're probably going to tap into some of those concepts for things that we already have, not in a plus-minus stat, and try to apply them and integrate them with the and really build off of what we already have together with LeBron. Thanks to Krishna and Tim. Hopefully they're going to stick around for a little bit longer so we can get a post show up for Patreon subscribers. Remember to check out Shuffle at getshuffle.app slash thinking basketball. And here's how it works. I'm really excited about it because when I do a show like this, it's hard to, you know, sort of clip or remember a specific section. It's also difficult sometimes to see comments. And Shuffle works as a podcast player that allows you to go in and clip and grab your favorite sections and then comment on them. And then it creates a feed of those things so you can access new shows or you can keep track of your favorite shows. You know, some of your feed will essentially be uh, a clip of your five or 10 favorite podcasts or whatever. And they already have a a pretty vibrant community of NBA fans sharing and discussing the best clips from the top basketball podcasts. So if you're a fan of this show, go on. I don't think there's any clips up there of Thinking Basketball yet. Let's see if we can get some Thinking Basketball clips up there. And I'm also interested in just seeing comments and discussions. It's hard to see those on shows. I like to know what you you find interesting. Sometimes this show has very different types of episodes, and it's tricky as the podcaster to get feedback. So I'm really excited about the ability to be able to see all this stuff in one place. Check it out. GetShuffle.app slash Thinking Basketball. Of course, that's a great way to support this show, as is directly signing up at Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. You get things like podcast post shows, early access to videos, a historical database of stats, more content, uh, and a discussion community. That's it for this one. Greatest Peaks will be resuming this week for Patreon subscribers and next Monday, February 15th, on YouTube. As always, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end and wherever you are, of course, I hope you're having a great day.